You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the first installment in a new Handshake miniseries covering Nick Reffin's Too Old to Die Young, featuring Miles Teller, L.A. Wastelands, Mexican Cartels, Cocaine Baptisms, Psychic Healers, Pederast Executioners, Hart Bachner, The High Priestess of Death, and Billy Baldwin's Ruined Septum. Be the tiger, Martin. Be the tiger. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how much Nicholas Whiting Reffin can you stand? Um, I think I've already found my limit, but a couple... <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. <laughs> so we have some explaining to do on this one. Um, what both me and Martin, first off, uh, apologize for not having an episode for you last week. We were both traveling. I went to uh, the Exune Films uh, 10th annual, I guess it's not annual because they stopped doing it during COVID, but the 10th edition of X-Fest, which was a 12-hour, seven-movie film festival at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where I watched seven exploitation movies in a row. It was great, but Martin, you uh, were a little bitch and went to a wedding instead. How was that? It was awesome. Went to a good friend's wedding out in West Texas and kind of lived the the desert life for a few days. And everyone's so freaking chill out there. And I've heard that it's near Marfa and everyone always talks about, oh, like you get out there. It's so relaxing. And everyone I met was just like so like their energy level was at like 60. And it was awesome. Like it was a very relaxing place. Everyone just like drinks margaritas and hangs out. I'm like, I could I could get used to this. So yeah, unfortunately, it seemed like the COVID level was at 100, though, because we're, uh, we have to apologize because we're recording remotely, so our audio might not be 100% the best for this one. But poor little baby Martin, he's quarantining because he got the Rona. So please send him all your good vibes. <laughs> thank you, Jacob, and thank you all. First time, um, lucky that it was post-vaccination and post-boosting uh, and... Um, able to kind of just like sleep it off at home and, and just been just like chugging water. Um, but, and also watching some uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Great time to watch it when you're a little bit delirious. Yeah. Just total drone core, like cough syrup <laughs> cinema. 
But that's what uh, the next bit of explaining we have to do is that we are now going to kick off a four-part mini-series covering Nicholas Winding Refn's Too Old to Die Young, the little-covered 2019 Amazon miniseries TV show cinematic streaming thing that he unleashed upon the world. And it kind of got talked about for like three hours and then disappeared from the consciousness entirely, even if uh, honestly it it invaded it at all. Um, But that's kind of the point of what at least I pitched this idea to you. That's what I wanted to do is that it felt like a thing kind of like the empty man to me to where it's like, here's something that one of us really, really likes. We'll get into how much you like or dislike it in a minute, but um, one of us really likes it and thinks that it is kind of ripe for a cult rediscovery. And this is the third time that I've watched it now straight through. And like my, sentiment remains the same. Like I really want to dive into this and and provide it with at least some kind of thoughtful criticism that I think escaped it on its initial premiere, but to go along with um, our four part uh, mini series, which we're going to do one episode a week, three episodes, and then one of Refn's features to go along with it. And this week we picked Martin's favorite Refn movie, correct? One of them. It's, it's, it's one or two. Yeah. Okay. So we're doing we're doing Bronson, um, which is actually what got me into him in the first place in 08 when I first saw it. So um, it's gonna yeah, be that was gonna be yeah. that was gonna be my next question, like why Bronson for you? Because this is distinctly your pick. Is even revisiting it, and I'll save a lot of this for the actual Bronson segment. But I I still don't love Bronson as much as other people do. So what made you want to pick that first out of all of Refn's movies? I mean, a little bit was chronological. I figure we're kind of going through his his filmography, and I feel like Bronson's kind of a a turning point where everything post that is a, like a certain era for him, um, like that, and like Valhalla Rising, and then to Drive, um, and then Only God Forgives. I feel like it's kind of this really interesting like section of his filmmaking, um, and I also thought from what I'd seen before of too old to die young, this was the most tonally different um, from that just on the surface. It's definitely different than the kind of drone core we're talking about with this show. Um, like, oh, sure. Me, like, like for me, like the show is neon demon. It's like neon demon, the TV show. It's the next step past that Bronson's like back, you know, 11 years before the show was what came out or, you know, was made. Um, and, I also just, I just really, I've always enjoyed Bronson. Um, I think it's like Tom Hardy at his, also before he started kind of doing his droning thing, like he kind of came into this era of him mumbling a lot. And like, this was an era of him being very theatrical and like very cockney. And that seemed to have gone away lately um, where he's more animalistic and growly. And I really kind of miss the very sarcastic big it's a little bit of that in the venom movies i think he kind of brought back the theatricality and also it's definitely in bane in uh, dark knight rises um but that's kind of what i was leaning toward and again i've always liked bronson and i still do on rewatch so well i'm excited to really break it down with you because i feel like that movie is kind of widely beloved out of his filmography he's become <sighs> reference sort of become like a, a i don't want to say a controversial 
filmmaker even within like the film community or whatever but like he's almost one of those guys who's like i hate this term but he's like on like the film bro mount rushmore oh it's yeah like with him and like michael mann and stanley kubrick and like basically all the guys that he idolizes but it's like the modern version of that is like him and nolan and I'm trying to think of like what's a third one. Well, I mean, honestly, it's not bro. But Wes Wes Anderson's up there too. Yeah, it's not, it's not. But it's just like it's the kind of like shorthand for like I like movies, you know. Yeah, or like, I have a Fight Club poster or whatever, you know. Yeah, Fincher would probably be right alongside Fincher. with them too. But he's like a generation right in between the two of what we're kind of talking about that that kind of new Hollywood or post new Hollywood era, and then you have like ninety like. Fincher's almost like the poster child for like the nineties film bro era. And now Refn is like the, the latest generation of that. Like he's the, the aughts and like the, the 2010s and 2020s, like one of the great film bro kind of edge Lord poster children. Yeah. And it, for me, it didn't really hit in terms of like the broader audience until drive. Um, oh sure. So like I again, I, I'm not saying anything new here. I'm, I, I'm sure you agree. Like when I got into him, it was three or four years before Drive came out. This not to be like I liked him before it was cool, but I'd heard about him and I liked what I saw. And when I heard about Drive, and I'm like, oh my god, it's going to be this like the driver with Ryan O'Neill, Walter Hill kind of thing, a pared down crime drama with his synth, his synth music, the whole thing, and. I remember seeing that in the theater and just kind of being like, wow, this is made for me. And then it just expanded. I actually, I worked on a film a month later and all we listened to is the drive soundtrack. Like the entire crew was just obsessed with like that synth wave, like chromatics, you know, all the Johnny Jewel stuff. Um, so I don't know besides that film, if he's had that big of an impact on like the general audience. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think even to Refn himself, like he didn't anticipate Drive being a big hit. It was just one of those odd synthesis uh, moments of like the perfect guy with the perfect material released at the exact right time because that was also when like Gosling was like kind of at his most Gosling because you have like him transitioning right between the notebook and what he would later do too. Like even with stuff like crazy stupid love, which is right around the same time yep. he was like, he he just got this young actor because what was the other movie that he did right around the same time where he's the crack addicted teacher is that half nelson oh, half nelson's amazing now, that was oh six i love is half that nelson. that far ahead of drive oh six yeah five years jesus this is how you know age warps your memory or oh seven <laughs> but it was still i was i remember where i was living when i saw it so um, okay. Yeah. But I mean, like, I, I remember everybody really loving Gosling and like, he was really kind of on the come up because he, he became this like indie darling and then drive hit. And then everybody wanted a scorpion jacket. What it was. And it was right around the time that he had just done blue Valentine. I think it's around or blue Valentine after it's right around the same era. Cause he, cause he linked up with C in France cause he they did blue Valentine and also placed by the pine. So he was, he was connect, connecting with these cool indie auteurs um, and playing with his, his cool image too. And I think there's elements of his character from drive in place by the pines. as this kind of like stoic, like kind of like 
totemic badass main character um and again very much in that kind of walter hill kind of hero you know that's just like the driver kind of thing um but it all blew up with drive I mean, his cool factor just took it to the next level, I think. And they, like, they tell stories of how he and Gosling, like, basically fell in love. Like, they, they'd ride around together and play with their music, and that's why they did Only God Forgives for significantly less money, I believe, too, just to, like, have a pet project for them. Yeah, I believe, to, to kind of bounce off of what you're talking about, like, I don't think that you get the really awesome character intro that he gets in Place Beyond the Pines, where you, like, do that long oh. follow shot and through the carnival where he gets on so the dirt cool. bike and goes in the iron cage and does like the whole like crazy kind of death defying stunt where they're whizzing around each other and going upside down and everything in that just a very kind of old school evil Knievel way. But I don't think that you get that intro if it weren't for drive coming before that. I don't think C in France, like maybe he would have thought of Gosling just because of, of Blue Valentine, but like it, it feels like gosling playing off that image to one degree or another yeah i would completely agree and i don't love place from the pines and i have kind of problems with the script but i think like it's a well-made movie um and i think that gosling but i totally agree it's that very i guess impressionistic and again very michael mann kind of thing of cop you know cop and um and robber you know, very, very kind of like binaries and then the crossover and of course generations of fathers and sons. And yeah, I quite like place beyond the pines, but I always thought of it as more being like a Sydney Lumet movie, like how it does the generational thing. It's kind of a longer epic and it's really interested in like kind of the moral decay and like consequences that happen from like these guys making these choices, but that's, discussion for a whole other podcast yes. uh, about filmmakers that you have a let's say contentious relationship with but let's get to too old to die young and the first volume the devil Volume one, The Devil. So, Martin, let's just put it out on the table. When this first premiered, I loved it. I watched it all the way through. I kind of watched almost one or two episodes a day because I didn't want to completely mainline it, but I think I finished it in just about a week or so. You did not finish it upon its its initial premiere and you still haven't finished it right like this is going to be us going through this going to be your first time watching it as a whole yep so um i will be watching uh the episodes for our episode to record which i think is a good way to do it we can I, you can kind of i can experience it and you can experience it again through through my eyes uh again you're, you're i know you're watching it as well um i watched I think 20 minutes of the pilot or of the devil um, when it was first on. 
I was already done with Refn. Um, I, um, uh, so the, the night before I moved from Atlanta, I saw Neon Demon. And he and I had been breaking up for a while, been a, a slow breakup for, for Refn and me. And then I saw that and I was, I was fucking done. Um, I really hate Neon Demon. Um, and I know, I know, I know you're a big fan. Um, and I think it is, I, the, as I've come back and looked back, I think it is, his filmmaking is a certain, for a certain taste. Um, and I know you pretty well. And even rewatching, even watching this now for the first time all the way through, I'm like, oh, this is so Jacob. This shit's like made for you. And it's weird. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, I know you pretty well now. And I'm like, there's certain scenes and I'm like, I hate this scene. I bet Jacob's favorite. It's just like, and again, it's not like one of us is right or wrong. It's just complete taste, right? Um, of like, you're either on, and I think it's one of those things too, like, one of the things I respect about the show is there's no like half measures. It's like, look, you're either into my shit. This is him saying this, or you're not. And if you don't like my shit, you're not going to like, but this is not for a general audience at all. The fact that this was fucking made by Amazon for what was the budget? I mean, it, it, it looks expensive as fuck. And they shot for 10 months. Like they, I mean, they I, shot this for almost a year. Like the way that Refn describes production, I don't think there is an actual number or there, there is, but it's like, it's never been released to the public, but it's like, I, I read an interview today um, because I've been going back and just trying to find the initial writing and reporting on it, which again, frankly, like there, there isn't a ton of, and I found a, a press conference that he did because this he premiered three of the episodes at the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, that's right. And he talked about the production of it to where uh, he was like, we would shoot for basically like, we, we would go out and as he says in his very pretentious refiny way, he goes, we would go out and we would paint every day until I ran out of money and then we would get more money again and we would go out and we would paint some more. And that was the process is that he was literally just using like Amazon's and the other producers. Cause if you notice too, there are other producers listed on it too, that are, they're probably from Copenhagen as well. Yeah. Um, that are some uh, not American names. We'll say that looked like they, they've worked with him for years um, so I, I think he was even going and getting money outside of Amazon to complete some of this and that they would just go and go and go. But like he shot this for the better part of a year and then edited it for like the better part or maybe even over a year after that, because I know that he began production on it during um, the first election when Donald Trump w was running. So 2016. Yeah. Right. Doing the math, that seems right. Yeah, because he, he talks about how shooting it during Trump's campaigning in America and watching that kind of schism emerge in like kind of American uh, politics and culture is that it, he, he describes it as being really scary and really influential on kind of the tone of too old to die young, because as an outsider, this, the, this guy from Europe, you know, existing here and making these, these, these extreme pieces of cinema in America while America was kind of experiencing like a, an extremity unto itself. Uh, he said that really kind of 
fueled a lot of what he was doing every day, the, the painting, as it were, of Too Old to Die Young. But what was it about these first couple episodes? Uh, what was it that made you, because you just said you watched 20 minutes and then what, you turned it off? Like, what was it that made you go, nope, not for me? Um, the pacing, um, the, the speed of the, the, the pacing of like the scenes um themselves and then the lack of volume the fact that everyone whispers all the time like i know he's doing a thing um but i felt everything is so subdued and we're gonna get to bronson later which is a very vibrant wild you know energy and this is like like you said, drone quite really, 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 really subdued. And at that time, I wasn't also like when I first, I think 2019 when it first when premiered. And like, I like Miles Teller now more, but, uh, but at that point, I wasn't really into him. Um, but I think it was just like, I don't, I, I could not commit to 10 episodes of that too. Like if, it, if that was an hour and a half movie, I would have pushed through. But, All right, cool. It's reffing. I'll watch the new movie, but he's not going to get 10 hours out of me. And I don't even want to finish one episode. Like I, um, yeah. Because it's, it's worth it, noting that the episodes are like the first two, the first episode is 90 minutes long. I think yep. 92 minutes. And the second one is almost a hundred. It's 97. Yep. And then uh, an hour and, fi- and then 80, 75 for the third episode. Um, yeah. But it's, it's interesting, something you brought up when we were prepping this and you were kind of like giving me some more information. And, and I didn't even realize when it was first on that Ed Brubaker was the co-creator of this. And Ed Brubaker, um, one of my favorite comic writers, um, his Batman stuff's great, but also all of his like noir shit, like Fatal, which is his like Lovecraft kind of noir stuff. It's just like, it's it, that's, that's my shit. Like you're talking about this being your shit, like that's, my shit and then his series um or his graphic novel the fade out or um criminal or sleeper and keeping that in mind now re-watching it um it's i you you told me that the brubaker was not happy with the the final product of this and you can give me more information about that but my initial thought is this is so not Brubaker, like the ideas of like, he loves like these under these underground cultures Brubaker does um, with kind of pulpy um, noir kind of setups, right? That's very much what this is. But his stuff is like popcorn, like it pops like, um, like, like Howard Hawks, like the big sleep, like super dense, twisty turning narratives and like bing, bang, boom dialogue. And this is like at quarter speed. And I'm like, dude, just hurry the fuck. I, I fast forwarded one scene. I'm like, okay, you just panned across the scene for eight minutes. Jesus fucking Christ. It's, <laughs> I don't know. It's so self-serving. But again, doesn't that doesn't work for me. It is the ultimate in indulgence. Like, because even yes, Ref and Cops 2 in that same uh, press conference that I was reading is that he was talking about how streaming is the future and what, he doesn't consider this a series. Now, right. here, here's the thing is that there, he says some conflicting things like he normally does because he's always full of shit whenever he, <laughs> you know, he does press. But it's like, you know, he, he, he says that this isn't television to him, that he made a 13-hour movie that you're yeah. just watching in blocks. 
Um, in my, I remember back when it first aired, I called it his Berlin Alexander splats because it's like him. It's him doing like fast bender would do when he made like world on a wire or Berlin Alexander Platts to where it is technically quote unquote television or even like Bergman with Fanny and Alexander. Decalogue. Exactly. Yeah. It is quote unquote made for television, but you watch it and it's just a gigantic movie. It's just broken up into parts so that they could air it in a certain way. But like, he considers it cinema because as he says, like streaming, I can't remember the exact phrasing that he uses. I should look up the quote because it was kind of interesting. The idea that he had in his head when he was making this is that he said, streaming is all around us. It's almost like an energy source. And he said that he wanted to like basically channel his own stuff onto this energy source and that it was, it, it's the way that he can now kind of do whatever he wants because that was the time. And obviously this is a big thing that's, that's coming out now with like Netflix making that big announcement that they're not going to invest in like the Scorsese's and the Quarons of the world anymore. And they're going to scale back on some of their production budgets, but like he hit it just the right time at Amazon that where they were kind of writing blank checks to auteurs. And in Amazon's case, like to guys like him or like Spike Lee to make like Chirac and stuff yeah, or, um, Uh, Manchester by the sea as well. Like they were just being like, here's an auteur, here's an auteur, here's an auteur, here's a check, do whatever the fuck you want. And he, in this interview kind of more or less cops to that, to where he's like, I took the money and I was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want. And he certainly does because even in this first 90 minute segment, it's reffing like cranked to like 15. Like every scene goes on forever and i personally like the thing that you dislike like you just said like shots there's so many slow zoom outs slow zoom ins dolly left pan right watch miles teller like walk to his car or walk into a building or like when you're in that giant uh industrial filing cabinet of like a police office like it's just pulling back and showing you the entire canvas but it's like to me that's the biggest kind of signifier of what his headspace was like because he's just like I'm allowed to do five minute fucking takes on this. I'm allowed to do 40 second zoom ins. I'm allowed to do all of these whip pans and dollies that go on forever because like, that's me, that's my style. And if they're going to give me the check to, to basically, as he says, paint the way that he knows how, like I'm not going to fucking criticize Van Gogh for painting the way that Van Gogh does when he made starry night. Like that's, that's how masterpieces are made or in your eyes, that's how, total fucking jack off moves are made because like he is jerking off to one extent or another. Yeah. Um, what you just mentioned too, about like, you know, hitting at the right time with where Amazon was in terms of the, the projects they were, were funding. It's like new, new Hollywood, man. Like it's that era of just yeah, exactly. like, it's a great time to be an auteur where there's just money to fucking burn and Bezos and them are looking for Oscars. They're looking for just like views and they didn't really have a, um, like now you can tell what Amazon's doing is like they, everyone wants game of Thrones now. Like every, they, they had their um, wheel of time. Now they're doing the Lord of the Rings series. Like that's where they're trying to get their, spend their money is like on that kind of shit. But here was this era of 
you know, again, like an auteur like like Refn is able to make a 13-hour movie. Um, and it, it's interesting because um, you and I have talked about this before, but I usually am annoyed um, when miniseries are called, oh, it's, it's a movie. It's just an eight-hour movie. Like, like, for instance, True Detective is a TV series, right? True Detective is a TV series, um, eight episode. This is going to be my next question for you, actually. I, w- I wanted to dig into this. But I would agree with you that I actually think this constitutes as a movie. Similar, I think it's really great you brought up, like, Berlin, Alexander Plotz, and film, and, you know, projects like that, which don't really fit a normal miniseries, limited series, movie, and or, you know, series. And he also has zero interest in TV mechanics of, you know, cliffhangers and, oh, are they going to find out that she's 17? Like, they just jump right through it. What another show would have made last like a season or not had in at all him screwing an underage girl is now like, they just jump to the next scene. Like, my dad wants to meet you. Okay. You know, he takes out all of the normal stuff that would have been drawn out to make it um, that addictive TV that, that all, you know, that all studios want and streamers want, but he has no interest in that. He doesn't give a shit. When did Autorist TV begin? Like when did we officially get into the age of Autorist TV, or I guess the, the more common term is, is prestige TV, because like, this isn't the first time that we've covered something like we did, you know, we already covered a whole Mike Flanagan, Flanagan series earlier, you yeah. know, and that certainly fits into the same type of thing that we're talking about now, you know? So it's like, when did this begin? Do do we think that the, the modern version of it is like true detective, which you already brought up? Like, do you think that's almost like the progenitor of what we now know as Autorist TV? That's the one that I kept coming back to. Yeah, I mean, because we're not talking about, you know, Sopranos or Mad Men or or Breaking Bad, which are more, which have creators, but they're TV creators, it feels like. And Well, that's the beginning to me of like what we now know as prestige TV, like the Sopranos, Deadwood, that original HBO, like Sunday Night Block, even The Wire. Yeah, I mean, because I think that's been one of the things that, this is a totally different topic, but I was having a discussion with our buddy James Shapiro the other night about why these streamers uh, either fail or die with their, their, or live or die with their content is that one of the things I've been impressed by with HBO Max is the fact that they even have their own versions of legacy sequels at this point by doing stuff like We Own This City or the Sex in the City movies and sequels and stuff. Like they actually mine their own IP and are like they, they, play off of the already established relationship that I have to HBO where like something like Hulu or Peacock or even Apple, because like I, this really, this whole discussion kind of came out of me being like, who is a movie like cha-cha real smooth for when Apple buys that? Is that for the Ted Lasso crowd? Like what's Apple's brand? Is that for the Tom Hanks war movie crowd? Like it's just a lot of these places are now uh, basically just buying stuff or producing stuff because they just need content without any actual through line to their content to where like 
we were just talking about Spiderhead before uh, we started recording, which is the new Joseph Kaczynski movie with Miles Teller as well. Um, but like, what, what do, how does that fit Netflix's brand outside of just like, they can put on the poster, you can find this on Netflix. Does that make sense? Like where HBO Max is like, we have real time with Bill Maher. We have the big movie every Saturday night. We have our series that play off of the established IP like, you know, they've even done the Many Saints of Newark, which is like their version of like a legacy sequel and bringing that home to HBO Max, like where these other streamers haven't. Like, I don't know how Too Old to Die Young fits into Amazon's early plan. Like outside of they were just like, we're giving money to auteurs. Let's see what the fuck sticks on the wall, you know? I think it's 100% that. I, I don't think there was any plan. Um, I think they were their, their team there was just like, hey, an, a, a respected, well-reviewed filmmaker, let's give him money once. Um, again, that New Hollywood kind of Wild West, right, of like every studio during the New Hollywood wanted The Godfather. You know, they wanted like an auteur or they wanted Easy Rider. You know, they wanted a, a movie that costs really little you know, almost like the, the Blumhouse boom again, right? If everyone wanted like a, a paranormal activity. Um, and, but back to your other question too, I think True Detective is like, was the most movie, I think we're also like kind of like the idea of it being completely cinematic. Like Sopranos is cinematic, Breaking Bad is cinematic, but not in the way that True Detective is, is with those stars too coming in, like that, caliber that was the next thing i was gonna say too is that it was like they got these two actors that you're like oh shit these guys are doing tv like that's crazy yeah it used to be that you that they were some of the first to cross over right because it was either like you signed on for five seasons and you were james gandolfini who was never a superstar before sopranos you know it wasn't a person like that or you get an aging star right as tv has always worked since the beginning of time of like okay this person's kind of taking a step down. They're going to have a TV show. But you have McConaughey, and, and especially McConaughey was at the really height of his popularity then. He was like... Yeah, it was the big part of the McConaissance was True Detective. Yeah, and he was talked about. He was making still making huge movies. And that was a step toward, especially the, mini, the miniseries um, of this is more of a movie. Again, I still think it has the pacing of a TV show because they stretch it out and like, there's all these subplots and things like that, which again, this and like has no interest in. Um, no. Yeah, this is way different. It's I, you're not even sure what it's after until even after the first two episodes, because to me, that's one of the most ballsy things that it does is that it gives you 90 minutes with the first volume and then completely abandons every character that is introduced except for one that you saw in one scene shoot a cop and then he's mentioned a couple times by like a couple gangsters but like that's it but then he is the main character in all of the second volume which goes on for almost a hundred minutes it's like it's an insane bit of novelistic storytelling to where he's just like this is this chapter and this is this chapter. Now, this is the part that I was going to get to about uh, Nicholas Winding Refn kind of being full of shit is that he also said it can because I believe he, he cut 
the middle three episodes and one of his great weirdo stunts is that he, he cut three, four, and five into their own standalone movie, played it at Cannes, and then said, well, it doesn't matter if you watch this out of order like you can watch too old to die young in any order which i call 100 bullshit on like you can watch the first two out of order i guess but even then like they wouldn't make as much sense as like going one two three you know it just it, it, that part i'm like nick shut the fuck up yeah I, I i think you could switch two and one but like you can't get to three and like if you if I started a, if I no. started at three like good you know good God no so Reffin has a big name actor here kind of like True Detective with um, Miles Teller who you know had been an Academy Award nominated uh, film at this point with Whip, Whiplash had done a bunch of stuff uh, but like I think the other big thing that he's bringing to this is that he has Darius Kanji shooting it. Oh, and yeah. he's doing his first uh, all digital production with it because I mean this show is absolutely gorgeous. That's the thing that kind of brings kind of pulls me through when I'm having a rough watch with an episode is like it is so professionally beautifully shot um and it's full on like neon hellscape when it wants to be but also like very beautiful but also kind of terrifying um i think like it's early in episode one where they just film that light strip moving down the porsche like the the hood of the porsche of of of, Ange, of uh, jesus's car and it's just like with the like super synthy mellow and it just kind of like melts down the front of the car where it's like okay i can fuck with this but then it's that for well, even that first shot where it literally pans over from like a very crude Mexican mural on the side of like a Mexican restaurant to like the hard neon streets of L.A. to where, you know, Martin Jones and his partner Larry are leaning up against their squad car talking about some woman who like won't leave Larry alone. Like it's like just the camera literally gliding over a metal body with like just light glistening off of it. And also I think it's kind of a clever, especially on revisit clever opening shot because it's literally like how the narrative will move, like moving from the city to the deserts of Mexico and everything. And he does it just with like this very simple kind of uh, setup at first that becomes this very long, elaborate droning piece of like technical versimilitude but kanji is like the other thing that elevates this above being just tv because you watch it and you're like this is so cinematic but it's cinematic to like a fetishistic degree no i, I would agree with that because you know um i'm not a cinematographer but my best friend is and i've shot films and you've worked on films and like just watching this, you're like, no wonder it took fucking 10 months to make this. I mean, regardless how long it is, like, these are some really elaborate setups, like some really, some really beautiful work. Um, and with films, you usually have more time for a setup and you have more time for special effects and everything because that's part of the schedule. With TV, you rarely do. And this, again, feels like the indulgence of, 
of Refn, but also of, of Amazon saying, okay, you can take the time that you need. It kind of reminds me of like the digital era of like Michael Mann. Again, like there's a lot of Michael Mann crossover, but like when Dion Beebe did like, um, specifically I'm thinking of like Miami Vice and the, the, the colors of the sky, he got the only digital can provide or with collateral, what digital allowed him to shoot with that kind of um, sodium vapor look of LA at night where the sky just becomes orange you know, with the trapped sodium vapor. Um, there's a lot a lot of collateral feels to this first episode too, I feel. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the way that he sets all of these scenes up and how long they play out for, like there's that whole scene where Martin and Larry stop that girl and Larry more or less like sexually harasses her like verbally and tries to even like finds her address, intimidates her almost into sex and everything. But like that scene goes on through like almost one shot for like minutes at a time. And you're just watching this car stop play out in like, it's almost like his version of bad Lieutenant where it's just going yeah. and going and going. And the shot goes on for so long that you literally watch Larry continue talking. Miles Teller takes the girl's, uh, ID walks back to the car and then back and you watch him go out of focus and then back into focus almost in like one shot. There's a cut in there somewhere, but it's just like, it's one of those moments that you're like, to your point, like how many setups did we do? How many takes are we doing of each one of these shots? Because like, there's no way you're nailing it on the first one, especially with the way that ref and directs actors to be, almost like his weird robots. Well, it's it's weird again to bring up True Detective is, you know, when we're talking about prestige, you know, cinematic TV or like um, auteur TV you mentioned was, you know, that episode, I think it's episode six of True Detective where they have the the one take, you know, which is this lauded right. thing. But, but that's, one, that's one shot out of eight episodes. Yeah, he's doing yes. this every episode. Every episode, like 10 or 15 times, these really elaborate, like long takes, long setups. They're not as like action based like the like True Detective was, but it's more like these, like, again, painting. The fact that he says painting, as pretentious as that is, like, this is full on painting with light cinematography. Oh, sure. I mean, just like these neon hues coming in. And I also think that, like, a lot of credit needs to be given to like their production design team as always with him of you'll see in the moment, like you could tell that someone ran some PA ran into like some, some like apartment down the street and said, Hey, can we put some neon lights on your balcony? Like there's just things where these little images. And again, that took time. Like these are things that they're shooting in LA where you don't own everything, you know, like there's, they had everything requires shots. permits. Yeah, and so like permanent or another, but I had to like knock on someone's door and say, "Hey, you're in our shot. Can you like, can we can we put this on your on your patio? Is that okay?" You know, just to kind of give it that pop, and you can see these like elements or adding a neon like um, there's that great that first scene of um, the neon Longhorn, like there's like the cow and it just like pops in the background, like, just these little elements like like a comic book, you know. Um, well, this, like, regardless of what you think of the narrative or even the technique that's used to bring the narrative to life, like, the location scouting to go along with 
the production design is really top notch because this becomes a really great L.A. at night or even L.A. kind of crime noir along the lines of not just Collateral or Miami Vice, but it it harkens back to Thief. It harkens back to stuff like Straight Time or even Reservoir Dogs that's shot in the valley or um, To Live and Die in L.A. Like oh, it's yeah. just that that very hard, concrete, neon, like everything's a glass building. Everybody's encased by metal. Like it's perfect for – Nick Reffin's almost like post-human style of storytelling because it's just like everybody exists and is part of the landscape. I like you say post-human because I guess I kept I kept thinking of that. Like that was those are the words that were in my head the entire time I was watching. And I already knew that was like his style, but specifically his later films like Neon Demon and now this are so everyone's so fucking cold. Um, and, you know, again, we're talking about Michael Mann here and him being like kind of dancing in the same um, arena uh, as Michael Mann. But Mann is all about he's a humanist, you know, like 100 percent. He's a romantic. He's a romantic. And so as um, over the top and as binary as and kind of cinematic as he can be, he loves realism, but he loves like real love emotion between men and women, between women and also the realism of the location and what I like about what Reffin does with this, he, he, he focuses to abstraction, you know, on, on LA. And one of my favorite locations you mentioned earlier is the police station. It looks like a fucking Cronenberg science building. It's so awesome. And it's like, what the fuck is that? Like this, like, you know, to quote Al Pacino, this postmodern dead tech, <laughs> you know, design. And it's just like, holy shit. So like, that's what, that's the thing I do want to say to you though, is like, it's a really weird watch for me because again, I don't love the story and I don't love the pacing, but then these elements pop up where it's almost makes me angry that I can't like it more that I wish I liked the whole package because like all the visual elements are my shit. Like I love this style. Like it's complete. Again, he's playing in Michael Mann's style and that's my favorite thing to see. So I wish I loved, I wish I connected more. And maybe, maybe the post human things part of it. I think I was thinking back, you asked, when I stopped watching the first episode originally years ago. And I think it was that opening scene is just so ugly. And, and I think I was also still remembering the ugliness of neon demon um, of just like, there's this horrible undercurrent of pedophilia, which is purposeful that like runs underneath the, the sense of the world she's in is dangerous to her. And she's young and there's people like Keanu Reeves and, and the whole world is out to get her you know, and to eat her alive. And this one goes hard with that too. I mean, the first episode, like the whole scene, I, for, okay. I do love Billy Baldwin. Um, that was my next question to you is what is going on with Billy Baldwin in this? Well, I mean, he, I love his sniffing. Like he just, he, he, he has no septum left. He just completely, <laughs> he did just so much destroyed coke. it with cocaine. Just There's like, so oh. much cocaine in this entire series. Like everybody is on Coke. Yep all of them and like that scene i was like very in and where he does the whole and when he's like how he holds the tiger and it's growling at him and I'm like this is ref and that's like that is an ultimate self-indulgence right and just like like holy shit or just all the stuff about like have her home by midnight i fucking just get her to school by monday it's like oh my god like what a just dirty place this is yeah this this 
work or whatever we want to call it, movie or series or whatever. It's a nightmare for anybody who like has ever lobbed the criticism at something that there were no likable or relatable characters. Like this is just like everybody sucks. Everybody's scumbag. Even your main quote unquote hero or whatever is basically probably he's a straight up murderer by the end of the first like two episodes or three episodes or whatever. He's fucking an underage girl. He watches his partner get murdered and more or less feels nothing about it because they're dirty cops and then becomes a hitman for a local. I don't even know what that guy does. He's like a gang leader. Like he I guess he has his finger in like everything. But Damien becomes like his boss more or less to where he just tells him to work off the debt, which that's my only problem with like the storytelling in this is pretty basic. And I think that's what. He almost takes Brubaker. He's doing, I think, what he did with Drive is because the famous story about Drive is that he had Hossein Amini wrote this very long, elaborate, prosaic yeah. script, and he cut all of it out, all the dialogue, and just reduced it down to a very uh, uh, elemental kind of cinematic style. And I feel like he did the same thing with Too Old to Die Young, is that, and that has always been Brubaker's let's say complaint with it is that he wrote all of this story for this and Reffin did nothing but just cut and cut and cut and cut and cut until it was just purely Reffin's own thing. And like Brubaker's name is on it, but he's like, yeah, I provided the bones of like a, a LA noir kind of story, but like he did the rest, you know? And that's really what these first three episodes are because they're all introductions is that with number one, you're introduced to Martin Jones, the detective who's like this dirty cop in LA and fucking an underage girl and gets involved with this gang leader, Damien after his partner is murdered by Jesus. Jesus is the basis for episode number two, where we get into um, this almost Shakespearean uh, story about, you know, cousins inside of the, the, the cartel and then three introduces two more new characters which just happen to intersect with Martin's story through sheer chance and like each one feels like Brubaker was like here's a character here's a character here's an outline for a story and Reffin's like cool I'm just gonna do my thing now and that like for as much as you kind of said like Brubaker's not present I still feels feel like his expert storytelling or his knack for narrative at least grounds this somewhat and keeps it from spinning off into oblivion, which it very obviously does every now and again throughout this 13 hour runtime. Yeah, no, I, I, cause again, Brubaker loves that kind of like Dashiell Hammett, um, like, you know, uh, or um, Raymond Chandler, uh, twisty, twisty, turny, um, and dirty cops and uh, the mafia, but the other other secret organizations, specifically in LA. Um, so I think like it's funny, like he gave him the building blocks of like here's like you said, like I mean, again when we get to when episode three, like John Hawks is very much a Brubaker character. Like that's the kind of guy who would be like the lead in another Brubaker comic series you know right um that is he has a series right now called reckless which is a kind of which i love and it's like a 1970s uh basically fixer 
like a private dick who like fixes people's problems. He lives in an old movie theater. It's super, it's super awesome. And it's like, I can see Hawks kind of living in that, that kind of Warren Oates <laughs> kind of role. Um, he definitely well. occupies that, that character actor space, unlike any other right now. He does. I mean, I, we were, I think we were talking about, I can see him as like a, a modern or an old, you know, younger Harry Dean Stanton, you know, of this, these guys, right. this, this weathered face, you know, and, like handsome in his own way, but brings a lot of like down home. Like you believe you could see him on the street. You know, I think of him, yeah. like Marcy May Marlene and how terrifying he could be a cult leader. He can be, you know, what's the film he did with um, Helen Hunt. Um, oh, the sessions the sessions, you know, and he's so warm in that one, you know, um, or even being the liquor store clerk and something like from dusk till dawn, yeah. or there is this really good, kind of uh, I believe it was a Texas noir um, called small town crime that he was in. Yeah, that was pretty fucking solid. Uh, But again, he just, just kind of like a down on his luck, Joe Hollenbeck style, like alcoholic who just gets embroiled in this uh, very pot boiler kind of plot that's happening and it's just a solid little movie, mostly because John Hawks is just a reliable presence in anything. Yeah, 100%. You want to get to volume two? Let's do it. Right, moving on to volume two of Too Old to Die Young, The Lovers. Martin, safe to say you certainly don't like this episode. This is the one that, I mean, like, I wasn't loving one, and this one was, oh my god. I mean, it's the extreme of what he's doing in episode, in volume one, of, which I, you know, for all you can't see, Jake is pumping his fist in the air as we're on video call. Um, It's Jesus fucking Christ. I think this the episode or the scene where I kind of was just like, I think I'm gonna lose my shit. And I was actually angry at you for a few minutes. Like I was like, I'm not, I was just like <laughs> why are you doing this to me? This is abuse. You like, said we were friends. I was like, and I was like, I text you, I was like, good thing I fucking love you, man. Cause I, it was the it was the it was the scene in the fucking police station. And it's just like Jesus is sitting there lounging. Um, the captain come, the police captain comes in and it's the, the whole, I kept thinking about film school and, and screenwriting. All right. What is the point of this scene? Right? Like, what do we try information? We try to get across the information is in terms of like information for plot. All it is, is like them putting a bet down 
um, also leading down the line to the the, the son has a, a an issue with the police captain, which will come back later. So it's important for that reason. But I think it's like 10 minutes long. Like, it's just like, oh my God. Like, it is just brutal. So if you again, ever wanted the same monologue about Pele twice, you're going to get it in this 100 minutes. It, you know, and also, you know, another thing that people will do, you know, s- filmmakers will do is, okay, we're going to repeat this story, but we're going to cut away or something to, because it's like when you're, it's like when um, you're reading a book and you get all this information, the next page, this goes, I told him everything he needed to know is the next thing. They don't retell all the information again. This show does not <laughs> do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and you get what he's doing because it's showing the cognitive de- oh, yeah. decline of this, this one character, which uh, in the second episode, uh, this is what I lovingly refer to as Cocaine King Lear because it's about an aging Don living on this estate who's about to expire at any time. Like his whole body is failing. He lives on a colostomy bag. He's in a yeah. wheelchair. But like he lives in the most opulent version of like a Don Winslow novel that you'll ever see. Yes. This like, is Don Winslow as shit. <laughs> yeah, this is Don Winslow. If Don Winslow was doing blow while he was writing, like it's absolutely <laughs> insane. But so he, you know, more or less adopts his nephew after his mother is killed. And his mother was murdered, as we find out, by Larry, uh, Miles Teller's partner. And he's the one who kills him in that that opening volume. But now we he's been adopted by the Don because his mother was the Don sister that he idolizes and may have even had an incestuous relationship with because like there's that whole monologue where he talks to Jesus uh, about like how he has his eyes and his lips and his face. And you're like, are you and basically calls him his son. And you're like, I don't know if you're talking about your DNA or if you actually are like trying to, are we supposed to infer that you fucked your sister? And like, this is the product Um, because one thing is Nick Reffin, loves Augusto Aguilera like his camera lingers on that man's body so hard and like it's like Teller's obviously doing the same thing that Gosling was doing for him as being like his statue his kind of puppet that he can pose and move and like he's almost like a chess piece on reference board like and he's he's doing everything as cattle as possible Yeah, exactly. Where Augusto Aguilera takes that to like a whole other level because he's straight up like modeling and like doing the Instagram like kissy face thing at times where like I actually really like him in this show. But like it's almost like Refn was like I found the ultimate like performer for me like this guy just gets what I'm into, which is this kind of bisexual violet lighted uh trip into like hell and he's our guide now so like you have him feuding with his cousin miguel not really feuding but like miguel obviously resents him because the don loves uh jesus more than miguel and miguel is the the heir to the throne as being his only son after uh the don is uh, 
basically going to pass away at any moment. And there's this feud with like a police captain and everything that's never really fleshed out. It's just we get like that they're dirty cops. They obviously went to war with the Don over like his cocaine empire. Many people died, but now there's a truce and they celebrate the truce by playing soccer against one another yeah. on a compound that's guarded by like the field is literally patrolled by men with machine guns, which is a great little uh, kind of uh, texture touch that I think Refn adds. But like, you said something to me while we were watching these and texting back and forth in that you were like, this movie has, or this installment has 20 minutes of plot and it's stretched out over a hundred minutes, which <laughs> is not untrue. Like this is out of all of the stuff or all of the, the first three kind of setup episodes that we get, this is 100% the most indulgent and also the one that signals like, Strap it in, boys, because this is going to be un unlike anything you've ever seen. You're just injecting pure refin into your veins. It kind of reminds me, moving from uh, volume one to volume two, from episode one to episode two, from moving from season one of The Wire to season two of The Wire, where it starts out and you're on the docks and you have Sabatka. You're like, wait, I know this is Baltimore, but what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? Right, you know, exactly. This is, and this is is doing it now in a you know episode to episode way. I I agree though because I think the Jesus character, I mean, like in the first episode he has the mustache, right, and then he shaves it off, and he's a beautiful man. Like he's just like, and I, he's very um el elvish, right, or elven, right, just this beautiful like, and again pursing his lips like you said, just being posed, and he's like I would say that you know you have that kind of western male face of um miles teller you know and then you have the ultimate extreme of harry dean stanton's <laughs> harry dean stanton through you know um john hawks and then you have this guy who's just this like beautiful creature and so i agree that there's just these scenes where he just like you can see the wheels turning for refin of like i don't want to move the camera like i like what i'm seeing and i'm gonna hang there um to your point though about the I, mean, I totally agree this is full-on Shakespearean I mean he's he doesn't hide the fact it's very over the top with what he's doing and the King Lear um and the and the almost like subtle fight for the throne um but you have um incest is a, a big thing in Shakespeare right and so I wouldn't put it past that's kind of like a hidden thing you know what's funny about right. you know, for as fucked up as Refn's worlds are I didn't take it that way at all. I just took it very much as like that very, if you read some, you know, again, these, you know, um, Don Winslow stuff, or you look at Mexican cartel films, the way that like men love their sisters is, is almost incestuous. The way that they idolize them, the way she's on the wall, it's like the Virgin Mary. They pray to her like she's the fucking Virgin Mary. You know, or the with a gun piece. at the bottom of the portrait. That's my favorite part. Is there's a, literally a handgun at the, like sitting on the frame. Yeah, and you know, and there's elements of the second episode that I really like, and I really like Yuritsa's character, and I like the because she's the high priestess of death, and like any kind of Western stuff, like of like I went out in the desert and I found her there, and now she's like my basically my my oracle. I'm like that shit's fucking dope, but like get to that quicker <laughs> don't make me wait for these like 15 minute like one take scenes to get there 
Yeah, Christina Rodlow is the real find of this series oh, because amazing. she's incredible in this. But I I like that you brought her up uh, quicker than the actual series does because, like, she is the supernatural element yeah. that Refn introduces that's kind of been present in his work ever since uh, too old, uh, not too old to die young, um, only God forgives to yeah. where he's very much emulating Yodaworski in these, like you could see her kind of emerging from the desert in El Topo just as yeah. easily as you could in uh, too old to die young. But like, she also becomes like this fortune teller and is reading tarot cards, which is where all the volumes take their, their yeah. names from. And then she also becomes the Avenger. She becomes the only good character thus far in terms of their morality because she infiltrates this cartel very early on when they – because I want to get to kind of what I think Refn's after with with some of the masculinity stuff in this. But like, you know – there's the whole sequence where the Don dies. Then they have this this party, which is told in one of your favorite endless dolly shots that just goes from left to right. It's my favorite shot maybe of Refn's entire career, but it's one of the ones you were describing earlier that you were like, no, sir, not for me. But <laughs> no like, thanks. And it's just like with this blaring Cliff Martinez – uh, electronic score, which is like out of this world and it's going back and forth. But then Miguel gets up, takes, you know, one of the prostitutes who's hanging out at the bar that they're, they're uh, celebrating at and basically has his guys come up and run a train on her. And then afterwards tells Yuritsa like, you're going to sell her to the gang in the next town when we're done and instead of selling her she executes the guys that are that come to pick her up and releases her and you can tell she's going to be the one kind of beacon of light in this apocalyptic hellscape yeah and when we get to episode three there's, there's another character i think that kind of links to of um that i think there's some, there's some interesting mirroring going on um but i but i agree because and she's a very, and I keep saying Brubaker character, but also that's just like noir character, right? Of the woman with a checkered past, but you don't know where she came from. You don't know what, what she wants, you know? And it's not until the end of the episode that you realize, oh, like she's a, a hero. You know, she's in there. Um, you know, she says I'm the high priestess of death. I mean, there is some supernatural element, but I take her as more of like, no, I'm, a, I'm an avenger. You know, like I, I avenge the women. I think when she's out there, at that kind of that shrine out in the middle of the desert. Um, but she's, I mean, another, another person that is such a, I mean, she's a very attractive woman, but it's just so, it's just so um, photogenic beyond that, that like just that striking of her walking through, like they're, they're, he, uh, Miguel's yelling at um, the other uh, soccer players and she just walks by his leather pants and she's just like strutting and she's like the whole, the whole frame just is like, in, just the whole focus goes to her. You can't help. And she just has that energy. Um, very cinematic. Um, so her, her thing, whenever she was on screen, about the fact that I find her insanely attractive, I found very compelling. Like the things kind of picked up a little bit when she was around. 
Well, what's interesting, too, is that this chapter, for all of its, uh, like, say, indulgence, um, also lays out the thesis statements of the entire show in a weird way. And that in the the scene that you actually fucking hate in the police station scene is that, uh, you know, at one point, the police captain, like, is introduced to Jesus and they call him the American Prince um, yeah. since he's moved there. And he asks him, like, what he thinks of Mexico thus far. And he goes, well, I think Mexico is the future. Right. And you can see he's a little perplexed by that. And he goes, oh, well, what do you mean? And he goes, because there is no law here. And that. I think becomes the driving force of this as it goes forward, because this becomes about this societal collapse on itself and this moral decay that's happening around us at all time. It's, it's classic ref and nihilism and that out of that emerged the people who more or less take advantage of it. The, the cartels, the yeah. dirty cops, they become the ones who are in power because they, they exploit the idea that there is nothing stopping them. There's no powers above them. There's no law overseeing them. And then it takes like lone Avengers like Yuritsa to become the high priestess of death to really kind of add any kind of order to that chaos. But then there's another line later where Miguel says, I would never become a cop because no good person becomes a cop. Like this show is very a cab. Like it, it like relishes how much it fuck like brew Baker and Refn hate fucking cops. Yeah. It, it, Cause it's rare in a, in a brew Baker story that a cop is the hero. Um, right. It, it's usually a PI or it's like a, a criminal um, and the cops are just dirty as hell, which is which is also a very standard to noir. Right. It's a lot of times it's the copy of one cop buddy of your PI and the rest are all in the pocket of the mob, you know, um, and we start the show with I mean, the that's the opinion of the, it seems like the opinion of Reffin and Brubaker of police is like that opening scene of, of the first episode is just like, we can do whatever we want because the idea of power, those who have power and those who don't is a huge theme here too. Right. Of like, Hey, who are you going to go to girly? You know, when they're just like, you're out here on your own, we're the cops, who are you going to complain to, which is also a very real world <laughs> and, and terrifying too. Well, and also the way that Damien, just takes over Martin's life uh, once there's yeah. one mistake that's made and literally says, you work for me now. Like he's not a cop anymore. He wears the uniform, but it's just a disguise hiding like this awful hitman that now exists in his place. Yeah. hundred percent. Now here's a question I'm going to ask you. And it's going to throw you off guard for a minute, but so I apologize, but is heat a good movie? Is Heat a good movie? Yes, Michael Mann's Heat. Is Heat a good movie? I think it's a masterpiece. What makes it a masterpiece? Um, I think a couple things. First off, I think just from a screenwriting perspective, to have this mosaic of a city, and you have you know you have your main two characters um, with Macaulay and with with Hannah, but there's so many ancillary characters, and they all work into the plot. Um, it's this magnum opus of, you know, 180 minutes characters coming in and out. I think that the definition of how to make a small character important is the Dennis Haysbert character, 
that you know you get like I think a total of eight minutes of screen time with him maybe and you get his entire arc as of this you know um guy gets out of jail wants to go straight uh with his woman and then ends up falling back into that um I think it's also a masterpiece because it's like the Michael Mann to his fullest all of his themes um of law and order but also the idea of the mirroring effect of being two men at work um who see each other and respect one another and say you know we may come to come to blows or come to come at odds but um the fact that we both are after per perfection of a kind of what we do like that makes us there's more in common between us than between me and other cops in between you know hannah between macaulay and his crew um but i also think and i don't want to jump on where you're, where you're going with this but i think that the pacing is perfect too that for three hours there's a plot there's a lot of plot there's a, you know it is a fucking thick novel of a movie um and there's just a lot to take from it so yeah but at its core, would you agree that Heat is pretty boilerplate in terms of it's cops, it's robbers, the narrative is something that we've seen a million times before about one crew trying to chase down an, another crew, and you're more or less just adding the texture of an auteur. Would that yeah. be out out of bounds? No, now, I don't think so. I, I think I think it's a it's a straight up genre movie in the end. It's a straight up like you said, cops and robbers. And that's why it's great. Is he it's, it's elevated genre fare is what other way I put it, right? That he takes it up. It's the acting, the dialogue, the commitment to realism. Another reason that's a great, great film is his just look at LA and, and every detail that Michael Mann focuses on. But yeah, beyond that, it's not like the most original story of, you know, and, and it goes back to Westerns too. Westerns of like cops and robbers respecting one another. You know, it's like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid kind of thing of these two sides sure. of the same coin. So yeah, that's kind of why I like it, right? Um, well, I'm asking the question because over the weekend, there was a screening of Heat, an anniversary screening at the Tribeca Film Festival with De Niro and Pacino. And afterwards- And you. And yeah, and it was like- Same time as me. Afterwards, there on film Twitter, a pretty prominent presence- pose the question what's the big deal with heat i don't like can somebody not it was kind of like a little bit of bait but also there seemed to be sincerity it was uh, jordan crutchiola who's written a bunch of different places and there was some sincerity to it but it was also a bit of bait like hey uh film bros jump in and basically she i think she even said at one point like i'm i'm totally open to mansplaining right now because that's what i'm gonna get but Take all of your answer aside. It got me thinking while watching Too Old to Die Young about movies that like just appeal to you because of not necessarily the narrative, but the texture that a particular auteur applies. And that's what I wondered because like why I think that this is a masterpiece, like from two episodes on and you are – a little put off by it is that I wonder if it's the same thing. Cause a bunch of people jumped into this and agree with them or not. Like, like some people are like, yeah, I never really got heat either. Like I like it, but like, I don't think it's great. Or some people who, you know, I totally disagree with. were like, well, I've never gotten the big deal. I don't think it's that good. And you're like, well, okay, pump the brakes. 
bro. But like, it's just one of those things where it got me to thinking like that you could apply the same question to this because it's like, it's the same boilerplate narrative. Again, like we've literally named job Don Winslow, Michael Mann, William Friedkin, Walter Hill. Like they've all played in this sandbox. It's just, this is Reffin's turn. Even Reffin himself has played in the sandbox to one degree or another, especially with drive. But like, there's just an intangible artistic value about it. That's going to appeal to me and not to you. The other movie I thought of a lot too was, uh, Dragged Across Concrete with S. Craig Zoller. That might actually be a more apt comparison here because of how idiosyncratic that movie is. And it, like where Refn is filling a lot of the void with silences and his long takes and everything. Zoller is filling it with this very uh, wordy dialogue like he usually does. So it was just a question that I wanted to ask you because to me it's almost like – like it, uh, there's an intangible something that keeps it from being a masterpiece to one person and a piece of shit to another. I, I love that idea. Um, and I completely agree. Um, and I've never actually been asked. I'm why I love heat. Uh, I mean, I, we've talked, you know, I've talked about heat for many, many hours together in our friendship right. and, on, and on the pod, but I think there are certain filmmakers who, are again I like just good genre filmmakers um that especially when man is doing his like cop stuff or like robber stuff like thief um but what I love about Michael Mann is the extra stuff it's the tangerine dream scores it's the blue light it's all that but to bring it back to Refin if man just did that I didn't have the backbone also of his strong like propulsive scripts I would get tired of his style too. Um, and I feel like that's where I lose Refn a little bit is that like, I am a person who just wants the story in the end. Like I'm more of a narrative, like just give me a cool and, and not even intricate, but just like a story that's moving. And this is so like all the elements, the visual elements are there that I love about Refn. But again, like that's why I like Drive a lot because Drive, while it does have its slow kind of meandering parts, it still is moving at a pretty good clip. Um, versus this, like you have an, every episode is a length of drive, <laughs> you know, it's like, and a lot, oh, 100%. Less, and a lot less happens. Um, and it's less well, romantic, the, too, you know? Oh, 100%. And I'm the opposite that you are. And we know this, uh, if you listen to like five seconds of this podcast is that <laughs> I've said numerous times that narrative is the thing that interests me the least, like at this point, because I'm a big believer in the fact that if you watch as many movies as we have and read as many books and comic books and listen to as many audiobooks and, you know, just experience storytelling in its many forms like we have after a while, it's all the same story. Like it's just the same story again and again and again, but it's about how it's actually told. And to me, Refn embodies that idea of like it's all technique it's literally like here's a steak it's like it's like a great chef it's like here's a steak you've had steak a million times before right. but you've never had it prepared quite this way you know so it's like 
he's just in there kind of cooking and and with this really cooking um and like you're either going to kind of tune into its drone core frequency or you're not and like i think that's what lost a lot of people is because he especially after the success of drive which he he's often talked about in almost like a negative fashion you know and then only god forgives kind of became like his fire walk with me to one degree or another because like he just totally rejected the things that made drive so popular he was like oh you like ryan gosling and you like him being stoic and like a getaway driver cool here's him as an ineffective mama's boy getting the shit pounded out of him for 90 minutes you know here's him trying to climb back inside his mom's womb you know just a yeah. real fuck you to the audience just yeah that's a total middle finger and like that's part of ref style too like he's a total provocateur yeah, like he yeah. wants to to poke you a little bit he's an edge lord a bit and like you're again you're either gonna tune into that and kind of laugh along with it like oh okay nick that's great blah 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 and then it appreciate the parts that he does so well or you're gonna be like fuck you i'm out and i'm out i mean and I'm, i mean i'm not like I, and we'll get to the third episode, which I think things really pick up with. Um, but I, again, he he really lost me. He started to lose me even with only God forgives because, um, you know, he he moved to to drive, which is just like he really kind of hit a really good um, a good rhythm there that like I think is like cool and it's still very refin but it's like entertaining and it moves and like it, it connects with the audience and you have a very like lovable main character. Like he's stoic, but he's also like, it's romantic as fuck, you know, that's like, it's kind of like all for love kind of thing. And you have like Oscar Isaac being fucking great in it. And then once he gets to, again to like neon demon where it's like, Oh man, you're fucking esoteric and you, you want to alienate your audience. Um, a, a lot of your audience and yeah. Oh, Neon Demon. Like, it's almost like he doubled down with every movie after Drive. Mm -hmm. Like, he just, he just kept getting more abstract and more impenetrable to one degree or another. Because, like, I agree with you, Neon Demon is the one where you're like, I'm not even sure what the fuck you're talking about. You're kind of doing an Argento thing. But, like, for me, that's great. But for a lot of people, eh, not so much. Yeah. You want to get to volume three? Let's do it. Too Old to Die Young, Volume 3, The Hermit, which introduces Diana, as played by Jenna Malone, and Vigo, which is our boy John Hawks. Now, here's the point where I'll agree with you. To me, this is the episode where it starts to synthesize and become like a legit narrative because of Martin and Vigo's, uh, let's say, uh, intersection with one another. But it's still... 
retains the same refin nonsense. Like it's still very long and played out. Now, the one thing that this one does introduce is comedy too. This is the the first episode that's actually funny. Yeah, it's you can feel the energy change with this episode. Um, it's still it's an hour, you know, and fifteen minutes long. I'd say more than half of that is plot. With when you know, with comparison to the second episode, which is about twenty minutes, oh, yeah. an hour and a half. Um, but I feel like Hawks again, like can't help but bring something to whatever he's in, and he brings a humanity. Um, he bring he, he you can't make him be a stoic dude. Like he brings this like warmth in a, in his own kind of way. Um, because Jenna Malone's very good at being the cold kind of weird robot thing that she can do super well, where she's cute as hell, but also like kind of weird and creepy. Um, I think though his just his addition, you're like, oh, this guy's also similar to Yuritsa, someone who's actually doing something to change a good good for the city and for the worlds. Um, like, oh, I actually have someone I could root for. Well, that's kind of cool because it starts out you're like, oh, this guy's a fucking serial killer. You're like, oh, no, he's killing fucking pedophiles. I can get down with that. You know? And so he kind of just like, I think, weirdly lightens the load of this of the film and of the world that there is someone like out there in this world who's not just a horrible piece of shit. Um, it's helpful. Well, and again, it becomes about like the societal collapse and the people who take the order or retaining some kind of order into their own hands because you hinted at this uh, in the last volume that there would be a mirror to Yuritsa and that is uh, Diana princess or, or princess Diana Jenna Malone's character um, because she works as a victim's counselor for uh, children who are assaulted sexually and then also like a psychic healer uh, to those same families who, who come to her and also uh, to Vigo. That's how she even says that they kind of first hooked up is that he was lost and he saw him to be capable of greatness. He just kind of had to get over his own open wounds, which we find out that he's dying um, from cancer. And his mom, a, is, his mom has Alzheimer's. Yeah, his uh -huh. mom is decaying and has Alzheimer's and he is kind of adrift in this apocalyptic wasteland of, of the world, which we, we get back to Darius Kanji shooting again, which is great because Diego Garcia shoots all the Mexico stuff, which is great. And if you've never seen his neon bull, definitely check that movie out. It's really fucking cool. Um, but like Kanji comes back and is again in full like neo-noir mode and just filling the frame with all of this great Los Angeles detail. But, like, we actually get characters, to your point, to hang on to because Jenna Malone, much like uh, Christina Rodlow's Yuritsa, uh, like, she is emerging from this horrible wasteland of, like, misogyny. Because that's the other thing we haven't even touched on yet. Like, there's a lot of misogyny, like, baked into all of these characters, oh, yeah. and it seems, like, purposeful. Well, the opening scene, again, of the entire show... Like he's the first line is because I'm gonna have to kill her. Like it's it's Larry saying like, and he's basically showing the woman Amanda who he's been sleeping with, cheating with, 
and saying like, I'm gonna have to kill her because she won't leave me alone. And he goes on this whole thing of like, women are only there to destroy you. So it starts out with this world. He calls them the ultimate evil. The ultimate evil. And so, you know, it goes, and then you get into obviously the, it's, it's misogyny, but also just homophobia of Mexican culture. In the second episode of like, you know, uh, the Don says that, you know, Miguel turned into the the F word. I don't want to say it, but, you know, he was basically because there's an element, too, of, of the uh, Vincent Cassell character from Eastern Promises there. You know, of the the son who's a little bit fey. Um, he, I think, overemphasizes how masculine he is because there's something, you know, he's not quite as masculine as he lets on. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree. That whole, that whole sequence where he like pulls the prostitute on stage and has his men uh gang fuck her is pretty reminiscent of when to bring it back to eastern promises when vincent cassell makes vigo mortensen fuck a girl in front of him a very young russian scared prostitute and it's just like that that power play you know um but I, i completely agree with you and i think that the kanji stuff in this episode too like one of my favorite shots of the show so far is when um uh hawks uh vigo is out target shooting with his winchester and he hops on the horse and the sun's behind him and it's like the oil fields of like bakersfield or wherever they fucking shot that and it's like chinatown or like la confidential it's just like just chef's kiss like and again it's like reffin's also playing with cinematic tropes right and imagery so it's like okay here's your here's your your agent gunman you know, because he, he was an FBI agent, you know, he left that behind because it seems like the law wasn't doing it for him. And now he's like doing true justice um, on a horse with a Winchester. I'm just like, I can fuck with that imagery. Well, even Jenna Malone has that very loaded line when uh, because the whole plot of this is that uh, John Hawks is Vigo kills a child molester and then in a pretty hilarious sequence the car breaks down where he has the the body in the trunk and he has to ditch it and martin who's now been uh upgraded to detective is assigned the case finds the body and then very quickly you know tracks down vigo and that's how they intersect like they he finds out that he's a killer does his detective work on them while at the same time is pulling off more hits for damien and one of the most horrific scenes in the show thus far he goes in and silently executes a woman with a needle of drugs to her neck only to discover her children in the next room well, and that's again where I think things start to pick up is there's a when I call it the inciting incident for Martin's character of uh, we've seen him. There's been a lot of changes for him, but mostly it's been here's this guy with no soul. He has no emotion. He's almost like frightened by the fact he doesn't feel anything for his partner, for anyone, for the children. And what he sees in Hawks, what he sees in the Vigo character is humanity. You know, he sees a guy, he's like looking for a teacher to be like, how can I give a shit again? You know, and it, it kind of reminds me of LA Confidential again, where it's like, why did you become a cop? I don't remember that great scene between with Jack Vincennes and Ed Exley, you know, and it's just kind of like, help me remember why I did became a cop, um, which I, I like a lot. Well, and to bring it back to your idea about the justice system and, and the line I was getting to is that, you know, he goes and interrogates Jenna Malone at her office and 
goes, you know, I work for the justice system. And she basically goes, I am well aware of how the justice system works, like in a very loaded sense of like, it doesn't like it basically leaves just broken and battered people behind in its wake, especially children. Yeah, I like that. Um, again, because this isn't a TV show. If this were a show, there would have been a whole thing of like, is Martin going to catch them? You know, are they going to get away with this? Because, but the show is really Which I not- think it does do to a certain degree when it gets into the the very mild procedural stuff. Um, yeah. That it does. Like, we're very much like, okay, when he catches up with them, how is this going to happen? Which leads to that great diner confrontation, which to me... I think this might be the only time in the show where it actually feels structured like traditional TV because it ends very much on like a cliffhanger where they have their discussion in this supernaturally empty diner. Like it doesn't seem like anybody like works there and Vigo just magically has a cup of coffee like appear in front of him that he's like drinking from. It's very strange. But anyway – that's his like Michael Mann diner moment oh, where like oh, yeah. they're talking there and he they have this very spiritual kind of interrogation with one another about like I killed a woman last night and I felt absolutely nothing. No remorse, nothing. Is that how you feel when you kill people? And he goes, no, you know, because there is a code to the way that Vigo kills people. He does feel like he's almost cleansing the world of like these horrible, evil people when he's doing it. But it ends on a note that's like. I'm not turning you in. I'm here to, to, like you said, learn from you and maybe team up with you. And it just kind of ends on a cliffhanger. To me, this is the first moment in the first, what, we're now almost five hours into this series that actually feels like television because it ends like, here's a big narrative moment. Tune in next week to see where Vigo and Martin go next with this. Yeah, he, here's at least we're pointing toward it's not even a cliffhanger, but it's like, here's what's coming next. We can assume, at me not having seen it, they're gonna be together, learning and whatever that goes. Like I have a I have a, a hint of like you said, tune in next week, um, and and what's and again I'm like oh I want to see, you know like I I watched John Hawks read the fucking you know uh, phone book, so like I'm I'm definitely interested in that. Uh, but I, I think this one, it, it definitely, it picks things up. Um, again, there seems to be some morals there. Like there are some moral people. Um, but then you get more, uh, you get more great Billy Baldwin. Um, all that bullshit of just like, you know, we're going to have a, in the honor of our our mother, his, his wife and um, Martin's girlfriend's mother, we're going to have a an art um almost like a nonprofit, it seems like, um, to sponsor. But it doesn't people. sound like it's gonna be a nonprofit. Like he literally is like, I have a knack for business opportunity and we could make some money here. And you're like, oh, yeah. oh geez. It's kinda like it's again Reffin's odd cynicism uh towards basically everything, because like even Martin's uh the the wake or not the wake but the the uh, memorial that the cops have in the first volume for larry after he dies you know his captain uses it as an excuse to raise money for some weird charity that they're a part of and we were we know we were messaging about this too that it's okay it's a memorial 
takes place at an Aztec temple slash brunch, brunch restaurant. Um, and so they're all sitting at this like elaborate, like long, you know, Tim Burton Batman table with everyone sitting around it. And she's like, they all have orange juice. And it's like, we're got, we got brunch coming. So hope you all enjoy. It's like, what kind of memorials? And then we have a memorial at this art studio where he's like, you know, telling stories. And it's like, so like you said, post-human, like this is not what people do. Like this is not reality. Yeah, it's almost like Reffin heard about the concept of church pancake fundraisers one time and was like, I know what that looks like. And it's like, no, you don't. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is the most ridiculous version of that. You know, it's interesting. I think a, a cool double feature with this series, something I like a lot more, would be Paris, Texas, of another, like, you know, more Eastern European, but filmmaker, Vim Vendors taking his view of the West and like also like American cinema with a lot of neon too. Like he has similar like visual style with Paris, Texas. It's a lot more human and, and you know, you have Sam Shepard's story to fill it out, but it is kind of interesting to see how these um, European filmmakers look at our cinematic tropes um, and our view of like Americana and kind of run with it. Well, and even having Robbie Mueller uh, shoot the, the, Texas barren landscape like it's very reminiscent it's that's a good comparison because of how like Refn uses kanji and his lens to to make uh these kind of anti-human like towers in LA yes 100 yeah absolutely and like um I, when I was out in West Texas I kept imagining I kept thinking of uh Paris, Texas, the whole time I was out there, just that whole, that whole vision. I do like to bring it back to the, the unlikable characters thing is that for a while there, even on rewatch, I was like, Oh, maybe, you know, Nell Tiger free who plays uh, Martin's underage girlfriend out. I wondered if that was tying into the theme of like this guy trying to protect innocence in some way. And like maybe getting back to it. But then that whole bar sequence, which is to told through like a series of like Kubrickian dissolves where we can't actually see the bartender. And she like more or less like threatens this working class girl behind the bar with like getting terminated or turning the bar in because she's in there drinking underage. And she literally pulls out her ID and goes, this is how old I am. And then pulls out money from her bra and goes, this is how much that matters. You know, like this is the real power. And then all of a sudden you're like, this girl's already destroyed by the world. And even the bartender remarks at one point, she's like, your cheeks haven't even hollowed out yet. And you're this evil. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad scene too. Um, I love that moment because out of all of the digressions that Refn goes on, like that's one of his, his worst. He, he really is driving home. Like nobody here is good. Yes. Yes. Now, one last thing that I had for us is that, you know, a lot of people compare this to twin peaks, the return yeah. like after it came after because of Lynch again, using the blank check, of streaming in that case, more or less almost like traditional cable was showtime yeah. um, because that was released on a weekly basis where this was all just one dead uh, kind of dump. Um, the one thing I think they do have in common where the comparison really sticks is the absurdist humor 
and like all the police station stuff with Hart Bachner here, like this feels oh, like yeah. Reffin doing a Lynch imitation the hardest because Lynch always has like bumbling cops who are kind of fat and eating donuts and just being goofballs the entire time. And like they, this, this feels the closest to that with him. Yeah, no, I didn't think of that comparison. I mean, obviously we talked before when I was watching this, you know, I was thinking of the return, another, another, as you said, show that allowed a filmmaker to just run you know, and I consider I consider the return. It's a mix of its TV, but it also is like one kind of moving cinematic experience. Um, but he's also hopping back into TV with and really relishing it. He had experienced that from the first series um, as well, and his his attempt at Mulholland Drive the series. Um, but I, I agree the kind of like the goofiness of. Uh, Hart Bachner's character does seem like those three, the three detectives, I think, from The Return, who are just like hilarious. Like they're so, and they're so weird, you know, absolutely. And I didn't even know it was Hart Bachner until you texted me today. And like, I love that actor um, from Die Hard. So just wait. I said, you haven't seen it yet. Just wait as it goes along. He gets some really insane moments in this. Good. That I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah, because I mean, even the 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 shitty detective in Twin Peaks: The Return gets to play kind of a version of that dumpy detective character in Barry recently. Oh, really? I'm not caught up on Barry, so I need to. Oh, it's another bit of great auteurist television because Hater really gets to be Hater, and like he's even directing it now. And next season, he's apparently writing and directing it all himself. Oh, cool. So. Yeah, it, like he's really developed into quite the filmmaker. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely do. I, I'm, I've done one and a half seasons, so I got to, I guess, do they're on season three now. Yeah, okay. I just finished it this past weekend after getting back from the, the movie marathon. And like, it's so incredible not to get on too far of a tangent, but I guess we really aren't since we're talking about our tourist television. But like you want to talk about a series that has viewed television as a blank canvas like the way that barry has evolved from pretty like it has like a very basic hook to bring it back to like the boilerplate ideas that it's like what if a hitman wanted to be an actor like that's where it is it's evolved so far past that into its own weird dramatic thing and the fact that it's able to pack so many layers into 30 minutes of television, not an hour, not 90 minutes. Like Nick Reffin needs like haters, like give me 33 minutes. and I'm going to blow your mind. It's well worth the investment. Heck yeah. Well, you want to get to Bronson? Let's do it. All right.
We're back talking about Bronson, Nick Reffin's 2008 prison movie starring Tom Hardy. Martin, what is it about Bronson that appealed to you? I know you touched on it in our opening segment as to why you picked this one, but why do you think this is the one we should lead with when when kind of starting this miniseries? Yeah, again, I think it's like... I consider the Pusher trilogy like a different part of his career, and I think Bronson was just like began a trajectory which ended with um this show um and by that i feel like the films got less and less insane um i think like you go from this and i to valhalla rising and valhalla rising is also like very kind of brutal but a little bit a little bit crazy too things seem to just get cooler and cooler like like cooler and like very like awesome but also just like the tone and everything just gets so much more subdued as we go on up to the Undemon and then to the show we're discussing um so i thought like if we're gonna go in this order it'd be kind of cool to start with bronson um and again like i mentioned in the earlier section it's one of his most unique films it's it really stands out among the rest is like very very weird even for him weird weird in comparison to his other stuff um and also has just one of his most um extra performances with hardy i mean we think we've we've discussed now with the show and with with gosling for quite a bit is how he likes to use characters as like you know um art projects right just like to mold them and show them the perfect light this one is like a is a is Tom Hardy's movie. It's really kind of interesting. He let Tom Hardy run with it the way that he did, and again, the energy is so zany. Um, but there's still all the elements there of like the awesome synth stuff. Um, I think Devil's the Devil's Candy is the name of the song at the end, which I really like. Um, oh, the Glass Candy song. Glass Candy, yeah. Which and is then, also like, a Johnny Jewel produced band. Yep, yep. And I remember hearing. I think they actually played that when I saw. The Johnny Jewel tour with Chromatics and Desire, um, but I, I also just really love the like kind of like late seventies, early eighties aesthetic of of like of London and the surrounding area, um, and you have like Pet Shop Boys and like Joy Division, just like that whole like sense of place and time, and I think I think Hardy's just kind of a blast to watch in this too. Like I really I really enjoy him. It's almost like an Alan Clark movie. Like it's it's like Hardy's doing like his best young Ray Winstone from Scum. Yeah, that or like you you know very um a little bit of uh you know Malcolm McDowell, but I'm thinking of like movies like If or Oh Lucky Man. Oh yeah, totally. Like, was it Lindsay the, the director of this film? Lindsay Anderson, thank you. Um, like those films as well. Yeah, a little bit like the the kind of English uh, kitchen sink dramas that were in there where they were all about the working class and the struggles of them and the the kind of uh, prevailing attitudes that overtook that um that kind of class of folks there's definitely a lot of that here to me the movie it reminds me of the most because i i do agree with you that it's a turning point movie, but I think it's a turning point movie and where he begins to start wearing his stylistic influences on his sleeve uh, pretty uh, pretty well uh, because where 
you know, drive is him doing Michael Mann and, and Walter Hill. And then you have uh, only God forgives is literally dedicated to Alejandro Yodaworski. Uh, um, and neon demon feels like him doing Euro horror, like again, yeah. more Argento stuff and uh, Michelle Suave and, and stuff like that. Uh, this is his Kubrick. To me, this is his clockwork orange, particularly in terms of how, the entire movie is edited almost in dissolves and those Kubrickian dissolves between scenes where like you get the lingering haze of the last scene kind of hanging over the new one as it, it bleeds into one another. And like, he does that a lot, especially we, we bring up the bar scene in volume three of too old to die young. Like he's doing this again, but like, this is his cock rewards. It's about, you know, a, a rough hooligan from the streets. Like it wouldn't be hard to, to picture Charlie Bronson uh, as being one of the droogs. Like if he oh, got yeah. pulled in only, he would probably want to beat the shit out of the rest of the droogs just to prove that he was the best one. He'd but, top Alex, he could take, he could take him. Exactly. But, it, but it's about a guy, you know, uh, who finds that he only has one skill in life. And that's basically beating the shit out of people, but about how he, goes to prison and is dehumanized uh, from that and even deprogrammed to one degree once he starts to to dabble in art. But like it ends with the fact that 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 rage and that that desire to destroy everything around him is still it's still prevalent. It's still part of his soul and probably the predominant part of his soul um, the same way that like, you know, Clockwork Orange ends with I was cured. And that 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 crazy slow motion, like sex yeah. montage, essentially like that was the thing that this was was reminding me of the most where like you bring up a good point, like the pusher movies almost feel like his guerrilla style, like just, just planning his flag as a filmmaker, like I'm here, I can do this. The fact that he discovered Mad Mickelson or along the way, you know, doesn't hurt. Yeah, uh, but like. Here, th this feels like the first one, that the fully formed like Nick Reffin movie to where yeah. he would kind of build on this and, and uh, to your point, uh, hone his style for better or worse with every subsequent film. Yeah, and I love the comparison to Clockwork Orange because even Clockwork Orange for Kubrick is an outlier, it feels like he, uh, stylistically, you know, that he was so calm and, and controlled and everything he did. And there's a lot of that. I mean, there's, it's all still in there with Clockwork Orange, but it feels wilder, right? It feels like it's more explosive than, than his other work. Probably the closest thing would be like a lot of the yelling scenes from like strange love, but everything else is, is much more subdued. Um, well, I was, I was thinking too about the classic, the use of classical music in this, like he uses yeah. a bunch of Wagner and then also, um, the kind of discordant uh, needle drops that he throws in like the Pet Shop Boys and things like that to where like he'll use he does that again later in Too Old to Die Young. He, he uh, deploys Barry Manilow's Mandy uh, in a way that's pretty amazing. Um, right. So it's a thing that's kind of stuck with him. I mean, and again, like music has been a huge part of 
uh, his signature, let's say, because like you mentioned drive. And I mean, like he even went as far to hire Johnny Jewel to do a whole score for drive that was then tossed out. And then he was replaced with Cliff Martinez, who became like one of Reffin's consummate co-conspirators. But like music has always been a big part. And this feels like the first one again, where he's like, what can I do with this pop music that really kind of adds a texture that's uniquely me? Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know, you with uh, Pet Shop Boys, it's a sin that he's in the psych hospital and it's this like comedic, but really sad scene of like, he's just so dope to the gills that he's been, you know, he's lost his Charlie Bronson-ness, right? He's been completely zapped of all that. And it's just drooling. And it's him, like this woman trying to dance with them and they're all dancing around. It's so, it's so sad. But I think too, like the hard cuts to music, um, the Glass Candy song, and then, you know, the credits look like a fucking Noe film. Like the end credits. Oh like yeah. Reversible. The, the, the pounding music and like the large, almost like bulbous letters on the black and the red. And it was just like, okay, you're, you're fucking around with some stuff. Yeah. It's him doing, I stand alone. Yes. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Tom Hardy's performance a little bit because as good as it is, it is different than pretty much every other performance he would ever get from another actor because he lets him really go and become like, because a big part of Bronson is the whole idea of like, the world is, is your stage for everyone. You're always like the main character in your own movie. And this guy, like that's almost the driving force behind him entirely is that all he wants to do is be famous. And the only thing that he can be famous for is beating the shit out of guards in prison. So, but he even has those sequences where it's Bronson standing on stage narrating to a mostly silent audience the entire time. Who's kind of, I guess, supposed to be us. Like those are the parts where I really like it, but I'm also like, I'm not 100% sure what this adds uh, to the film as a whole. Yeah, I, I I like your idea too. It's it's very much about the presentational nature of life, and that he's always he's always performing, um, and that he even mentions really like you know I can't act, I can't sing. This is what I got to do. It's is, not even his real name. Yeah, you know, it was, and it was given to him as his fighting name. You know, and I like. I think this is also a movie where I really noticed Brody, uh, um, Hardy, Hardy, uh, Brody, what the fuck? Um, where I mentioned, Brody. Right, where, yeah, I just wrote, I just rewatched Jaws anyway. Um, but remember seeing him in like Star Trek Nemesis, and he's in Rock and Rolla, like the same year as this, I think 08. And I was like, who's well, this? that was the big talking point too, is that he was skinny in rock and yes. roll and people were like that's the same guy in bronson like he's swole when it, he kind of started because like he he's not quite to the insanity of like christian bale with body transformation but like or even like, bane or bane because well he had a very similar body type he has this brawler not cut but like old school like fisticuffs brawler in in um bane but then you think warrior he's like cut from wood. yeah you know that's the one where i was gonna correct you where you're like <laughs> Warrior was the one that's kind of like Alexander Skarsgård in uh, the Northman recently to where like he just has those fucking neck muscles to where you're like, you can do that. Like, how do you develop those? Yeah. Is that a human being? 
Um, but he he's very he I don't know like his his outbursts of like of like verbal assault is like I think really entertaining. Like there's the scene where he um, keeps the librarian in his in his cell. He's like, don't sit there, sit there, you fucking cunt. You know, and it's just like this barrage. And um, I don't want to watch this movie all the time. I think it's it's kind of an assault on the senses. Um, and I had it's kind of repetitive it. too. That's oh, yeah. my my big issue with it is the fact that it's like it kind of gives you the same thing over and over. And I'm like, I I like Breffin's violent explosions. Like it's one of the again one of his kind of trademarks um that we haven't even gotten to yet on on too old to die young but it's like how many guards can i really watch this dude pummel because like i get it and and again i do think part of this movie is to your point like he's assaulting you as well like it's you're supposed to feel bruised when you walk out of it because like it literally ends with a guy in a cage because like you can't control him any other way but yeah it's it's sort of like damn dude like how much of this can i actually take yeah and, and re-watching it like i you know again i think i've my relationship to Refn has changed and even though this is one of my favorites it's still there are elements where i'm like all right get to the fucking point you know let's get to the end here and it's only this one's like you know 93 minutes or something like that but it, it does have pacing issues um and i know he's doing this kind of he's doing this whole thing where it's like his plan the biopic a little bit like he's like fucking with that kind of narrative structure of like what you expect and like the whole thing about him crying and then gotcha you know the unreliable narrator stuff but almost like there could be more of that and less of like you said the repetitive just like punching it's like and what is the point like what are we trying to work toward here um in terms of like especially for a character who's just so beastly and who's not gonna have a catharsis like what do you do with that well, let's get to that, um, because I do think that this movie does start his other kind of fascination that runs through a lot of his filmography, which is his fixation on masculinity and certain types of masculinity to where like Bronson, you just brought up the scene where like he goes to prison for the first time for seven years and like he gets into his cell and he starts crying and it cuts to him on stage doing the same thing and then turning around and going, gotcha. Like he's not allowing himself to have any kind of emotions that would make him seem weak or fey in any way. And I find that kind of fascinating because again, it's all about this performance. It's all about putting on these airs of being a tough guy the entire time. But the people who actually end up harnessing that are these artistic types. One who is clearly gay and who becomes like his, yeah, who becomes his like fight manager outside of, outside of the, the, um, kind of prison and then when he goes back into prison he it's almost like this behavioral therapist who gets him into like art therapy and expressing himself but it's also clearly gay and kind of flamboyant but it's again refin is reckoning with these ideas of like what happens when this sort of brute force meets uh a, a type of masculinity that we as a society kind of sometimes label uh, unmasculine, let's say. 
Well, because, I mean, you also have his uncle character, his I guess his dad's brother, he goes to stay with. And it's like there are um, uh, transgender people and, and like living with him and uh, older, just older women who are obviously either prostitutes or just like, you know, are kind of kept women. Um, and he's like living in the space. But you you think about his relationship. I forget her name, but it's the the girl he meets there at that apartment. And he like falls in love with her. Is that and Irene, I believe? Irene was his wife. Or is that the first on. one? Okay. Yeah. So the one he meets there, and then she's like, he, you know, steals her a ring, and she's like, well, I'm gonna marry my boyfriend. Yeah. You know? And then it actually because you have you know, no, you have no ambition and no potential. <laughs> yep. And he, just, you see him like. What's cool too, what you're kind of getting at too, is we see the limits of that kind of masculinity, like that he thinks he can pummel his way to anything right and not that he's going to beat her up but he thinks like his his masculinity his prowess will allow him to beat the world in a submission but like in the end you're gonna he said he's gonna end up in a cage like in the end you're a feral fucking animal and that's all you are um and if you think it's more than that you're wrong yeah it's almost like a cinematic realization is that uh, of the old expression of like, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, yes. you know, and it's just him trying to pound his way through life. But he doesn't realize that as you do that, you're only perceived one way. Like there's literally nothing else to you except that you're just a brute instrument of like destruction. And I think that Refn does take some of that and translate it to too old to die young because it's like, uh, Martin again at one point says that he's he's almost become so numbed to the idea of even death because of like both his job and his second job that he's employed under Damien that that's it that's all he is now is just this walking floating kind of like corpse machine yeah and that um you think about in Bronson too um Aside from the idea of masculine, well, part of that masculinity is being a, a, a being an island, right? You don't need anybody. Um, you're just you're just this. You want to be adored by the world, but also like you are, a, you know, a one man army. And the scene where he decides to turn on the art teacher near the end of the film is when the teacher says, basically, we're gonna go far. And it's that line that like stops Bronson. He realizes he's like, you can't fucking use me. I'm on my own. Don't think that you can control me in any way. Cause it's all the stuff you see the scene previous where he like goes to meet the warden and he's completely docile with the warden for the first time ever. And, and you, but you could see him itching. like, I'm going to burn all this shit down. You know, he's the real Bronson's itching to get out. And so um, again, very similar to, um, to clockwork orange, right. Of like, no matter how much you think you've, um, rehabilitated him you have it that he's just a, he's a monster in the end i wonder how much of this is also perhaps inadvertent self-reflexive commentary by refim himself to where because so many of his movies contain this kind of like nihilistic range the entire time like i wonder if he's commenting on the fact that like if i didn't have art maybe i would be like a serial killer or just like Basically, just just a tool of society that has like nothing, 
no other purpose, you know, and he has all of this kind of anger built up inside of him, but he's actually found an outlet for it because so many of his protagonists, they get one thing to latch on to like Bronson beats people. And then later learns to harness that and become more or less a person because of art. The driver harnesses it through like working on cars and being a skilled professional and having his relationship with Brian Cranston, you know, uh, only God forgives is literally about people spinning out of control because they don't have anything like anchoring them to the world except for violence. And it's like, Neon Demon 2, like it's all about these talented people who are sucked up by a machine and like they're fine. They're trying to find ways to express themselves beyond like this kind of cruel world. Like there's always this idea of like people latching on to a way to either express themselves or like repress some kind of rage that's building inside of them and bubbling over. And I wonder if that's where this begins with with Bronson with him. That's interesting. I'd almost connect this film then to like um, the house that Jack built with for Lawrence Run True, the scene where it's like the idea of connecting a serial killer with art, you know, right. the, and like the scene where he's like looking out at Elysian fields, you know, and he can't touch them. It's like you're in the end, you're just a beast. Um, and the connection between it's very, again, house Jack built self-reflexive as fuck. I mean, it's completely about his career. Um, yeah. It's him commenting on his own art and misogyny or like perceived misogyny and everything. Yeah. But I mean, like here we're left at the end of volume three with Martin, perhaps finding a way to channel his, his newly found uh, ability to, to wield death perhaps in a positive way, but we're going to have to tune in next week to see if that actually happens. Indeed. So Martin, this has been great. I hope the next three find you uh, a little more favorably, uh, yes. but I think you will. I think four, five, and six are are it, they have quite a few surprises along the way. Uh, let me say James Urbaniak, not to uh, ruin anything, makes an appearance in one of the most uh, notable reference scumbags in his entire filmography. So I think you have a lot to look forward to. And then we also have a, another ref and feature, which you'll have to tune in and see which one it is. We'll see you then.